Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 136, A Conversation with Morgan Adams. I am really excited to bring you this episode because Morgan is a holistic sleep coach for women who struggle with getting a good night's sleep consistently. Her goal is to help women feel better and live better. And as we know, the key to doing that begins with a good night's sleep. I know so many women struggle with sleep. And when compounded by stress, anxiety, all the responsibilities, side effects from early menopause, menopause, side effects from both cancer and non-cancer medications, sleep is really problematic for many people. And so I want to spend some time talking about that today. Morgan herself is a two-time breast cancer survivor. She's an advocate of healthy living for risk reduction, for integrating holistic strategies into cancer treatment. And she herself is a former insomniac who spent almost a decade using prescription sleeping pills, despite knowing that her overall sleep quality suffered. On today's episode, we talk about everything related to sleep. She talks about how she approaches sleep as a sleep coach, tells us a little bit about sleep chronotypes, sleep-wake cycles, how this impacts our productivity, how we define chronic insomnia and how we can begin to start to address it. And she talks a little bit about principles of CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. We talk a little bit about under diagnosis of sleep apnea in women. We talk a lot about supplements and her thoughts on prescription medications for sleep. I think this is a great episode to get you thinking about how you approach your sleep and are there tips and strategies that you can take from this episode to hopefully start sleeping a little bit better. With that, it is my honor to welcome Morgan Adams to the Interlude Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude Podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Morgan, I am so glad that we are here and we're talking, and today we're talking all about sleep. I am so glad to be here with you, Dr. Eleanor. I appreciate the invite. Um, this is my favorite topic, so I'm excited to, to dig in. Perfect. Tell me a little bit before we dig into sleep, you know, a little bit about yourself, your background, what you do, all of that. So I have been a sleep coach for coming up on two years. I, I was one of those folks who uh, had a dramatic career switch from the pandemic. <laughs> it kind of created this, like, I need to do something very meaningful in my life. I actually did have insomnia about 15 years ago, pretty bad. I was dependent on Ambien for about eight years and was able to get out of that cycle. It wasn't easy uh, to get off the pills. I definitely recommend that anyone who's on sleeping pills who wants to get off of them, work with your doctor and ideally also a sleep coach because it's not easy. I was able to get better sleep after I got off the pills, refreshing sleep uh, for many years. And then the pandemic hit. March of 2020, my sleep started to tank and I got really concerned about going back into full-blown insomnia. So I started to research sleep. I bought an aura ring to track my sleep and I got it, I got it back to where, you know, baseline, which was pretty good. And I started to post on social media just authentically, like you would, you're going to a good restaurant or you saw a good movie, like, Hey, I'm doing some things to help my sleep. And all these people were like, Oh my gosh, I'm having trouble sleeping too. And that got me more excited. And then at the end of 2020, I decided I have got to like make this into something where I can help women on a larger scale um, with their help, with their health. I knew for quite a while um, that I wanted to work in a field to help women with their health, but I just had not landed on the topic and then sleep just kind of, it fell into place for me. And so I've been doing this for almost two years, love it. Um, so that's a little bit of my background. I have other careers in my background, but they're kind of not relevant to sleep. <laughs> and, it's, you know, I know that your kind of company or is Morgan Adams Wellness. So yes. is sleep 
part of that? You know, are you doing other things with wellness or primarily focusing on sleep right now? I'm primarily focused on sleep. So I, I call myself Morgan Adams wellness because I really take a holistic approach to sleep. So when I'm working with my clients, I am looking at movement, nutrition, um, and really all aspects of their life. So I didn't, I didn't really want to make it a sleep specific name. At some point, maybe I'll rebrand myself, but for now, I kind of wanted that flexibility um, that wasn't just specific to sleep, but yeah, I am specifically a holistic sleep coach. And I, you know, I love though that you do that because we all know that sleep is not just about sleep. It's everything else in your life. And so having that holistic approach is, is really important. Um, And, and I know that you are a breast cancer survivor as well. Twice. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's kind of start because I really want, we could talk we could talk about a lot of stuff, but I want, you know, sleep is such a, a big, big issue for everyone, whether or not you're a cancer survivor or thriver or not. I think we've all struggled at some point in our lives with sleep. And especially during the pandemic, as you alluded to, right, that, that was, there was so much happening there. What are, can you walk me through that initial, you know, those questions that you ask, if someone says to you, Morgan, I cannot sleep, or I'm having trouble sleeping, right? Where does your mind go in terms of, all right, what do we need to know? What are we, how are we going to assess this problem? Yeah, they're, they're, um, it's a multi-layered. So I ask a lot of questions about their health status because we really want to get a baseline of their health because uh, there could be something that is related to their health that is causing their sleep issue. It's usually not the case once they get to me. They've, they're usually pretty healthy. I, I tend to attract a fairly healthy type of client. Um, So then we um, delve into a lot of the behaviors that may be contributing to um, subpar sleep. Uh, We talk about their attitudes towards sleep. A lot of times when I'm working with folks who have insomnia, they end up having negative sleep beliefs and attitudes, which is very normal for people who have insomnia. So we really try to work to correct those um, beliefs and attitudes. But what, you know, when we go through the coaching process, it's really a lot of experiment experimentation, trying new things and seeing what sticks because it's not the same for everybody. The same types of interventions that work for you might not work for me. So I like to have a whole lot of tools in my toolbox to try for people to see what ends up working. Um, we look into uh, also chronotype, which is basically a fancy way of saying, are you an early bird or a night owl? I try to make sure that people are living and sleeping and working within their proper uh, chronotype, because that's really important. Um, and yeah, so it's just a plethora of different tools um, that I have at my disposal to, to help these women. And when you talk about chronotype, is it as simple as saying, oh, you know, I like to wake up early or I go to bed later? Are there actual questions and, you know, like a quiz of some sort that you give to people? Yes. Great question. There's something called the morningness, eveningness questionnaire, which is a a validated questionnaire used in sleep science. And it's it's a multitude of questions and it can accurately determine how far you are along on the spectrum. So you've got people who are extreme night owls and extreme morning larks. And sometimes we can find that people have circadian rhythm disorders. So they may have something called advanced sleep disorder, advanced sleep phase disorder or delayed sleep phase disorder. When I find somebody like that, I screen everybody in the very beginning of the process and the initial um, consultation stage. If I determine that someone is on that very, very far spectrum and they have a a true circadian rhythm disorder, I do refer them out to a sleep doctor because I'm a sleep coach. I I want people to be pretty clear. I want to stay in my lane. So I'm really working with folks who have insomnia. Um, They want to optimize their sleep or in rare situations, people who are willingly sleep depriving themselves and need a lot of structure. Um, But yeah, it's interesting because there are several genes that contribute to whether or not we're a morning or an evening person. And this morning, this evening, this questionnaire actually aligns pretty well to like a 23andMe. So it's pretty accurate. And there's also um, a lot of people have heard of the sleep doctor, Dr. Michael Bruce. He really honed in on the sleep chronotype um, concept, and he has a cool quiz you can take online called 
Um, I think it's called The Power of When, or if you just, if you Google chronotype Dr. Bruce, uh, you'll find his quiz. And he likes to divide people into the different animals. So like the bear, the lion, the dolphin and the wolf. So then there are different types of patterns that people can follow according to their chronotype. Um, but it really helps me when I'm working with clients to find out what their natural inclination is when we're trying to set bedtimes and wake times, times to work out, times to eat, times to times to work. So it's very helpful. And do you find that, you know, when after people take this questionnaire, that what they are doing kind of already aligns with the results? Or do you ever find that, you know, someone is doing something that's really completely discordant with what the questionnaire tells you? Yeah, you know, I, I have been lucky that I have, most of my clients are pretty much working within their, their designated chronotype. We may tweak a little bit, but generally speaking, when they see the results of their quiz, they're like, yeah, that's totally me. And I do, and I do kind of follow these things. Um, what, what, what the problem is with some people um, who have insomnia is that they may not be um, going to bed at the right time for them. So, or let me just rephrase. So a lot of times in our culture, we talk about, you need to go to bed early. You need to prioritize an early bedtime, like 10 o'clock or whatever. There's just <laughs> this arbitrary number, like number thrown out. Okay, so 10 o'clock works for the bulk of people out there, but there are people out there who, are later, later night owls. They might be bordering on having a circadian rhythm disorder and they naturally start to feel sleepy like after midnight, but because they've been told by like they, you know, online that they should go to bed at 10 o'clock, mm -hmm. what happens to them is they're lying in bed for two hours waiting to feel sleepy and they become anxious. And so it, that can kind of perpetuate their sleep issue. They might not actually realize their chronotype. Now, I haven't had a client like that, but there definitely are people in that scenario who are who are not like sleeping within their chronotype. And then, so in that case, you know, what do you do? Do you just then go to bed later? Because you know what our culture as you said, is really designed for that. You go to bed at 10, you know, and you wake up, uh, you get your eight hours and you go to wake up at six. And so let's say you are that really late owl, night owl, and you're sleepy around 11, 30, 12. How does that fit into? Well, now you got to wake up at six, right? I feel like there's so many problems that then arise from that. Yeah, it can create a, a huge problem. So with folks like that, um, you know, it's, they're actually quite honestly better off being like a freelancer or somebody who is able to have more control over their work schedule, but that's not always the case. So um, it can be really challenging for those folks. You know, there's not like one easy fix. Um, Sometimes, you know, I, I try to work with companies and when I do talk to the companies, I, I do bring up the fact that not everyone is on the same schedule and like, you know, bring up to the manager, Hey manager, have you considered not having all the meetings at 8 a.m.? You know, like let's maybe, you know, this is kind of an idealistic example, but I think it, it's fairly doable. Like within a team, if you're the manager and you're managing 10 people, maybe do a poll and see what their chronotype is and then maybe meet in the middle. Cause you're not going to please everybody. Mm -hmm. But there's definitely a way to like use the, this, the chronotype um, organizationally for works, for work situations. That's so fascinating. And it's so progressive and important though, because if you're setting meetings at 8am and the bulk of your team is not productive at that time, right. Or is not awake. I mean, in all yeah. of that. So let's kind of go back, go back to the insomnia piece of it. How, how does what, you know, I think a lot of people will say they have trouble sleeping, but what is that true definition of insomnia? Yeah. So the true definition of insomnia is when you have trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, or you're getting up too early at least three days a week for about three months. That is the definition of chronic insomnia. And on top of that, there has to be some kind of impaired daytime functioning, or somebody has to feel unsettled about their sleep situation. I mean, some it's kind of rare, but there are people out there who quote fit that definition of insomnia, but they're not bothered by it. 
So mm-hmm. we're never going to see them in a clinic or come to the doctor or come to a sleep coach. Um, there's also acute insomnia, which is basically the same thing, but it is a shorter period of time for like maybe under a month or a couple of months. So acute insomnia is something that a lot of people go through. Um, for example, when they have maybe, a, you know, a breast cancer diagnosis, mm-hmm. I went through that a little bit, um, just, you know, a couple of weeks when I was going through my decision-making process, but like divorce, death, loss of job, you know, just a crisis. A lot of people go into acute insomnia and they get themselves out of it just naturally as the situation works itself out. But sometimes the acute insomnia can develop into chronic insomnia, which is why I always encourage people not to sit on it for too long. Like if you're really struggling with sleep for a couple of months, it's probably a good idea to reach out to a professional to to get some help with it. So let's say, let's, let's focus more on the chronic insomnia piece. Okay. Yeah. Cause I think acute insomnia, like you said, has so many other, it, you know, triggers that could be making it happen, but talking about chronic insomnia, and I'm sure, you know, I see this all the time and in, in the cancer, you know, in breast cancer, people on endocrine therapy, I mean, those medications absolutely cause a lot of sleep disturbances as well. But let's say someone's dealing with a chronic insomnia, they've come to you, you've determined that yes, they do, in fact, you know, are suffering from chronic insomnia. Where do we go next? And I'd like to hear a little bit, if you can talk about this, you know, how things contribute, alcohol, um, you know, caffeine, you know, how do those things play a role, um, screen time, especially late at night in terms of our sleep hygiene? And does that truly worsen insomnia? Or is it something that we've just you know, we just say that these things worsen it. Well, you know, I think in my experience with folks who have insomnia, they often have like the best sleep hygiene. They've done all of the sleep hygiene Mm -hmm. tricks and tips and everything like that. And so with a lot of my clients, what is really driving their insomnia is worry and anxiety. um, And quite often a lack of routine. So we're working on really, really getting their routine in place, having a lot of consistency because our bodies and brains love consistency when it comes to sleep. So we're working on that. Um, And there's something called CBTI, which is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And that's actually designated as first line treatment. It's the gold standard for insomnia. And unfortunately, a lot of primary care doctors don't really know about it. And what ends up happening a lot of the times it happened in my case is that when a patient presents with insomnia that's chronic, they're given an Ambien, a Lunesta or some kind of pill um, because it's, you know, primary care doctors are really busy. They don't have, they don't know necessarily about how to treat insomnia. And so the sleeping pill seems to be, you know, a viable solution at the time. Um, And so a lot of times people come to me because they are either on a sleeping pill and they want to get off the sleeping pill or they're like on the the verge of succumbing to taking one because they're in such agony. Um, So I do incorporate some CBTI um, principles with my coaching Um, and it's helpful for a lot of people. Um, CBTI is, you know, it is the gold standard, but it is not like, you know, a slam dunk for everybody. It's, I would say it's about, you know, 60 to 70% effective. And it sometimes can be difficult um, because some, in the very beginning, you're adhering to some pretty strict um, bedtime and wake time schedules. So you become somewhat sleep deprived in the beginning, but it's only to consolidate your sleep. And then the sleep window opens up a little bit. So there's some there's some, you know, difficulties at first for some people, but not for everyone. Can you give me kind of a concrete example of what that would look like? Sure. So um, what we want to do is we want to look at the amount of time that somebody spends in bed for like a week, like the average amount of time. And then based on that average amount of time they spend in bed during the week, we want to look at that and give them one extra half hour um, in bed, time in bed to allow for that, you know, waking and sleeping or the disruption that happens just as a normal, you know, healthy sleeper. Um, And we're, we're basically trying to consolidate their sleep. 
So instead of spending like nine hours in bed, you know, with disrupted sleep, we're trying to kind of shrink that sleep window so their sleep is more of higher quality. Um, and this can be difficult in the beginning, like I said, because sometimes we're asking people to stay up a little bit later than they normally would until they get really sleepy. Or we may be actually, you know, asking them to wake up pretty early because we really, really want to have an anchored wake up time every morning. That's really one of the most important pieces in this whole CBTI bedtime, wake time situations is a really consistent wake time. So that can be difficult for some people because when you don't get really good sleep, you have a tendency to hit the snooze button. And when you hit the snooze button multiple times, it gives you a little bit of, it gives you extra sleep, but it's not high quality sleep. And you end up a little bit more fatigued any at the end of that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight and it takes some patience, but um, most people, like I said, can, can do it pretty successfully with, with some guidance. You definitely need, you know, some, somebody, or they even have apps now because with, um, with there's such a shortage of sleep medicine physicians that they can't handle the demand of all the people who have insomnia and need CBTI. So there are um, apps and there's certain sleep coaches like myself who have extra training um, and they're also self-help books. So the, re the, resource, the resources are definitely out there if anyone wants to look into it. So just from telling myself that I should not put four alarms on my phone, right? And not go <laughs> to each one. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I want to say, and I, I think, you know, it's kind of implied, but when we're talking about this, you know, we're not talking about things like sleep apnea and things that really need medical, you know, a physician um, evaluation and attention. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very glad you brought up sleep apnea because that is something that is not very well screened for in women. In yeah. fact, 90% of women who have sleep apnea go undiagnosed. It's a really big problem. Um, a lot of times when we hear sleep apnea, we think of like Homer Simpson, you know, an overweight middle-aged guy mm -hmm. snoring on the couch. Yeah. Right. But mm -hmm. there are so many women out there who, um, who are dealing with sleep apnea, younger women, thinner women. And then as women get into midlife, the sleep apnea incidence increases to match that of males. And what ends up happening is a female may go to her doctor and say, I have like, I'm so, I have like, have no energy. I'm low mood, et cetera, et cetera. And she gets misdiagnosed with depression and ends up on an antidepressant, which is not treating the sleep apnea. So then her, her condition just it gets exacerbated. So if there are any women out there who are getting the like amount of sleep that they usually need, like if they're getting seven, eight hours and they're still very, very sleepy the next day, they have headaches in the morning, um, maybe a sore throat. That is really, really a telltale sign that someone should really maybe have a sleep study. And with the sleep studies these days, you can do them at home, yep. which is great. Um, so you don't have to go into the lab. Um, there's so many options right now for in-home sleep studies. And I, you know, I'm glad that you brought up the headaches or just that not that feeling, not feeling fatigued despite a good night's sleep because. I think so many, so often we think of sleep apnea as you have to be snoring and you know, and that's not necessarily the case. It is for some, but definitely not, not for everybody. Um, and and I, you're right. I mean, it definitely gets, it definitely gets underdiagnosed. And in the world, you know, in the medical world that we live in, where you have 15, 20 minutes with a patient, I mean, there's just not enough time to go into all of this. Yeah. And there's a screening that a lot of people know about. It's called the stop bang screening test. And it's about like a seven question screener, screener, very easy questions. And it does assess sleep apnea. But the problem is, is that it doesn't really, it's not really validated for midlife women, because a lot of the questions are about like neck size and snoring. So if, if a doctor is giving that stop being question to, you know, me, a 53 year old woman who, who doesn't have a big neck, you know, like, and, you know, I may be misdiagnosed, I may be passed over 
you yeah. know, in that mm-hmm. screening. So we really need better measures and on how to screen women. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a huge issue. Now there is a huge industry. I want to talk about sleeping medications, prescription medications in a minute, but there is a huge, huge industry of supplements, right? Yeah. And now you've got the melatonin and then you have all, you know, all the other I mean, there's, you can go to the pharmacy and there's going to be so many different sleep medication supplements out there. Tell me your thoughts, some that you think are good, some that you think are not good. And I don't know if you have any experience with marijuana or CBD, but that's really entering the game as well in terms of sleep. Yeah, well, there are a plethora. So the most frequently used one is melatonin. Um, and it's not really, there, there's not like a whole lot of data showing that it's super useful for insomnia. It's better used for jet lag or circadian rhythm disorder. Um, but if somebody wants to try it, um, the the best suggestion I have is to start with a very low dose. A lot of the doses right now are like three milligrams, five milligrams. And another issue that's problematic with melatonin is that a few years ago, they did a study they basically pulled melatonin from the shelves of drugstores and they found that 70% of the melatonins did were either too little of a dose or too much of a dose compared to what was written on the bottle. And it was real, the variance was very wide. So for example, if you got a five milligram bottle of melatonin and it turned out to be more than that, you could risk being groggy the next day. So there are, there are some side effects for some people if it's taken in higher doses. So be a, be a smart shopper and look for a USP label on a melatonin supplement, um, get it more like from an online dispensary or from a trusted source versus just like a Costco, you know, it, there's a lot more we need to understand about melatonin, but I think it's a relatively benign one. Then mm-hmm. um, you mentioned um, marijuana, um, CBD, um, THC isn't generally looked on upon very well for sleep only because it, there can be dependency issues with it. So I, I, I'm not a big fan of THC for sleep. CBD doesn't have a ton of research, but a lot of people anecdotally say that it really helps them. I think CBD is more um, useful for, for folks who have anxiety associated with their sleep or pain. Um, but again, you know, if you're going to shop for CBD, definitely find somebody who sells it or a, an online retailer who really understands and can gu- give you some guidance about dosing mm-hmm. because the dosing does matter. You could, um, I don't, I can't f- remember exactly what it is, but like a low, a d- low dose could be activating. So if you take a low dose, you certainly don't want to be activated before you, before yeah. you go to bed. Uh, and what else, what, what about other supplements that you kind of come across with clients or things that you recommend? Yeah. Well, mel- I'm sorry. Uh, magnesium is actually what I recommend the most for people. And I don't actually consider it like a sleep supplement per se, because magnesium is responsible for so many different things yeah. in our bodies. And it does have somewhat of a relaxing and calming effect. And it, there's not a lot of drug interactions. It's very safe. You can't really overdose. I mean, you, you, you could potentially overdose on, I think, magnesium citrate and get uh, yeah. diarrhea. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not. Is but, there a formulation of the magnesium that you recommend? Because we do know that certain formulations do cause, you know, looser stools or diarrhea. Yeah. So the formulation that seems to work best for most people is magnesium glycinate seems to be like the, the, the superstar of the, all the magnesiums. And there, I think there are eight and there are also magnesium supplements that come with a blend. So you're getting all eight forms. So I think really it's, it's a matter of experimenting with different ones to see which one works for you best. And there's so many out there to, to, you know, explore. See there, there are just, there's so many sleep supplements out there. There are a lot of, um, ones out there that already have blends in them. It's not just like a single uh, herb or um, molecule, but there's, I mean, because I'm a sleep coach and I'm talking about sleep on Instagram, it's like every few seconds, there's a new sleep supplement that gets fed to me on, in my ads. Um, I do like um, something called Juna. It's a company called Juna. They have sleep gummies. I've been taking those recently and those have, that have been helpful for me. But again, it's just, you know, everyone kind of needs to, what, what works for me might not work for you. So. 
And, and is it fair to say that what works for you at one point in your life may not work, you know, a few months later or something changes? You know, I think very often I, I see in my practice, people will say, well, I tried it, you know, three years ago and it didn't work. Um, and things, your body changes also. And as we age, things change. Yes. I, yeah, I think it's definitely something you could cycle on and off and try different ones and bring bring some back into the forefront that may not have worked very well before. And I don't know, you have a supplement graveyard. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> I have to resurrect old things, you know, and try them again. And then I, I like, I, I fall in love with them again. And, you know, they go on rotation. And before we get to medications, are there other non-pharmacologic tips or tricks that you recommend to your patients? Um, yeah, there, there are a lot. Um, I would say first and foremost, it is, and we touched on this for a second, but it's the regularity of the wake up time. It is, it's, it's so critical in keeping your circadian rhythm strong. Also having morning sunlight as soon as you can in the morning, that is also something that helps to strengthen your circadian rhythm. And I, you know, often have to tell people you make, make sure you don't wear your sunglasses <laughs> because when you, what, when the light hits your eyes, the sunlight hits your direct eyes, there's a signal that gets sent to your suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is your circadian pacemaker. And that sends off a very interesting uh, cascade of triggers that uh, affect your hormones and neurotransmitters. So it, it shuts off your melatonin from the previous night. It helps boost your serotonin for that day. It helps increase your cortisol to give you energy. So if you're wearing sunglasses out in the morning, you're missing out. <laughs> That's actually, you know, it's, we laugh, but it's so important because we're conditioned, right? Sunscreen and sunglasses and don't expose yourself to the sun. And, you know, on the contrary, this, you need some sun exposure here. Yes. I mean, every day without fail. It's so funny because I take my dog for his walk and I see neighbors and half of them have sunglasses on. <laughs> and yeah. I'm just like, oh, please. You're doing yourself a disservice. Um, and how, how much morning sunlight do we need? We, you know, we don't need a lot. I'd say 10 minutes is sufficient, okay. mm -hmm. maybe a little bit more on an overcast day. Um, but you, you know, and if you, another question I get quite a, a bit is what if you wake up before the sun is out, which I do, I wake up pretty early and there are light boxes and sometimes they're called sad lights for seasonal affective disorder. They're, um, you know, they're about as big as a book maybe. And you just prop them up on your desk or your counter as you're eating lunch, I mean, breakfast. And you just kind of sit in front of that light. It's not an exact substitute for sunlight, but it, it will do in a pinch. You just want to try to have 10,000 lux in the light box. Um, that's helpful. And then I would say like the last really big mover for sleep is exercise. There have been multiple studies done showing just time and time again, that it helps with sleep efficiency, quality, uh, duration. And um, it doesn't have to be hard exercise either. There was a recent study that showed for people in life, the most effective type of exercise for better sleep is moderate aerobic. So you don't have to go all into hit workout. I know you and I both are Peloton people. So. <laughs> but, um, no, but I think, you know, that's a really good point that it can be gentle movement. Yes. Now, does it matter, you know, morning or night? I know everyone's different in terms of what works better for their body, but is there any data in terms of how the timing of exercise impacts sleep? Yeah, there's kind of mixed data on that, but I would say that the morning exercise probably weighs out a little bit more. Um, and also if you are a morning person, the morning workouts probably are going to be better for you. So if you're an, a, a night, a night owl, maybe the late afternoon exercise will work better for you. Um, the only caveat I would say is to not work out like, but like closer to two hours before bed. Mm -hmm. um, if you're working out too soon before bed, it's possible that your core body temperature isn't going to cool down okay. and you, you need a, um, a cooler core body temperature to sleep. So you want to give yourself a little bit of leeway. 
Um, I think probably ideally the best scenario would be morning exercise outside because you're hitting that sunlight quotient, that factor, and you're getting movement. So like a brisk walk in the morning, like, I think it's, it's wonderful if the weather permits. Yeah. The, you can, you get you hit all those boxes. Um, yes, <laughs> don't wear sunglasses. No, right. no. Lastly, before we get into medications, people listening, maybe they are not up to speed on their sleep hygiene. Top tips off for that. Yeah. So I would say watch out for caffeine. Um, I would never tell people to like cut out caffeine, but you really want to make sure that you adhere to some kind of caffeine curfew. And I would recommend probably noon for most people um, because caffeine has like a 12 hour quarter life. So if you were to have a cup of coffee at 2 p.m., it could very well be in your um, system by the time you're going to bed. Um, and also, um, I know I've seen this happen at restaurants. People have a, a cup of coffee after dinner <laughs> and they they're like, oh, I can totally sleep. And so they might be able to get to sleep just fine. But if you looked at a polysomnography, you might, you might see that their deep sleep takes a hit of like 20%. Okay. So your quality can suffer. So, um, and it's not just coffee drinks, but like, we need to be mindful of things that have caffeine, um, like dark chocolate. Like I was on a kick years ago where I'd have dark chocolate before bed. This is before I knew about sleep. Um, and I was like, it didn't even, it didn't even cross my mind yeah. to think, oh, there's caffeine in the dark chocolate, but we just kind of need to be mindful about what we're, um, what we're consuming with caffeine. And then another one is looking at alcohol. Um, we want to really make sure that we leave like a three hour runway between our last drink and going to bed. Um, because we, we, you know, alcohol is actually it's like our most commonly used sleep aid. Yeah. Because it puts, it, it actually can help you get to sleep faster. It relaxes you. But the problem is, is that it suppresses part of your REM sleep and it's very disruptive to your sleep. So you end up having several more wake-ups that often happen at the end phase of your night when you're having, that's the time when you should really be in REM sleep. So your REM sleep gets disrupted and you may have to go to the bathroom at night. Um, you, your sleep quality really does um, suffer. I think one drink for a woman can uh, impact her sleep quality by like up to 38%. Wow. So we really need to be careful. So my guidance for my clients is, you know, I, I don't want to take a hard line. I, you know, people need, I meet people where they are. If they want to have an alcoholic beverage, I'll talk to them about having, you know, um, happy hour versus a nightcap, like a five o'clock drink before dinner, instead of having after dinner drinks. So it's like, if you can kind of be mindful of shifting and as crazy, it might sound, you know, have a mimosa at brunch. <laughs> if you really want to have alcohol, because by the time you hit the, hit the hay, it'll be burned off. So you have to be strategic. And then, um, you know, finally, like with things that we take in, we want to be mindful about our dinners and we want to make sure that we can allow like three hours between the end of dinner and going to bed. We want to make sure that we have um, foods that are, are not too heavy or fatty. We try to try to keep a balanced plate and make sure we're getting, you know, high quality protein and some veggies and some complex carbs. Um, if you're going to have dessert, try to have the dessert like after lunch instead of after dinner, because sweets after dinner and complex carbs can make you hotter at night, which can cause you to wake up. So you just really need to be careful about like, especially the timing of when you're, of when you're eating. And I know that sometimes it's hard to control, you know, if we have dinner out with friends, we can't control that, but like, you know, socializing is important. So we don't want to, we want to kind of strike a balance so that like 80% of our nights were like on point and doing, you know, keeping those good behaviors. And I wonder if those, you know, that raising that core body temperature, that can contribute to hot flashes and night sweats at night, which can also impact sleep. Yes. That's a big, that's a huge issue for a lot of women that I see. And, um, you know, when you have a hot flash, you obviously know you're having a hot flash, but a lot of the uh, 3 a.m. wake-ups can be from being overheated. And sometimes women wake up and they're not even realizing that they're waking up because they're too hot. Um, and so um, 
there is a, I mean, it's a, it's a slightly pricey intervention, but they've got these mattress pads that are cooling that have, I've been using one for a couple of years and they've helped me tremendously, um, to keep cool overnight, um, have deeper, I personally get deeper sleep when I use the, the mattress pad. So, um, for people out there who are really, really suffering with being hot sleepers or hot flashes, look into one of those can be a game changer. You know, there's so many ways now, I think technology kind of to like almost, you know, to hack your sleep in a way. Right. And I, a lot of those things can be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. What is your take on speaking of kind of gaming or hacking your sleep in terms of the sleep trackers or the sleep rings or, you know, all of the technology that exists surrounding that? Great question. So, um, I, as I said, I have a sleep tracker, I have an aura ring and I've had it for three years. I bought it when I was going through that sleep struggle in the beginning of the pandemic. And it was actually really helpful for me. And I think that the best candidates for a sleep tracker are people who are pretty motivated and they're able to look at their data and make behavioral changes based on the data. So great for people like that. It can be a tricky scenario for folks who have anxiety about sleep or people who have insomnia because oftentimes they'll look at the data and they'll freak out when they see their deep sleep isn't as high, you know, and they might get more anxious. I like to also share with people that the staging on these trackers is not super accurate. So with deep sleep and REM sleep, we're looking at like maybe 60% accuracy. So you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. And I think at the end of the day, really my advice about sleep trackers is they're a great tool, but we really have to look at how we feel the next day as a barometer of how well we slept versus relying on the numbers because there've been studies showing that if you have a, a sleep score that is, um, you know, not good, but you feel really good, then you might not feel as good after you see the, the sleep score. <laughs> so there's a lot of kind of like, um, you know, influence there that we can see from our data that wouldn't have been there otherwise. So we just want to be, just want to be mindful, but I think for the the person who's motivated to change their behaviors, um, it can be a great tool. And I, I think just like you said, it's a tool. It's not the only thing that we use, but we it's part of the the you know the panel of things. So talk, let's talk about medications a little bit, right? And I think that there's there's medications strictly for sleep, the Ambien's, the Lunesta's. And then there are a lot of the anti-anxiety medications that are used for sleep, but because someone's feeling anxious. And what are your thoughts on all of those? I'm not a big fan. (laughs) So um, just having, you know, full disclosure, I am biased because I was dependent on Ambien for eight years. And just with those kinds of pills, they're called Z drugs, Ambien, Lunesta, Sonata, um, I think there are more, but those are the main players. Um, what they're doing is they're changing your sleep architecture. So you're really not going through all the proper stages. You're kind of just knocked out. Okay. Um, and so what I found personally was that, you know, it did help me get to sleep faster, which is what I needed because I was taking up to two hours to get to sleep. So I needed something to help me in that initial phase. However, the next day I was extremely groggy. Like I was very groggy. I didn't really become fully alert until lunch. I started having trouble performing at my job because I needed to be on point writing like press releases at at the drop of a hat. And I was just like at the keyboard, like, oh my God, like, you know, just frozen. Um, And so I think it was 2013 is uh, with Ambien, they changed the dose for women because they were finding that women were being overdosed. So they lowered the dose. So I, you know, that, that reflects a lot on my own personal experience. So I'm glad that they, they did that. Um, and they did a study, I think it was 2021 where they looked at women who were taking sleeping pills for one to two years. And they found that compared to women who were not taking pills, there was no st- statistically significant difference with taking the pills. So I think that sometimes we may think they're helping us more than they are. And, you know, when you look at the package insert, 
the medications do say these are for short-term use only. So yet, like I said before, for a crisis situation where you need sleep and you're, you, you just need something to get you over the hump, I think they're useful. But the unfortunate part is that physicians don't give you an exit strategy when they prescribe. They just do PRN kind of situation where like a birth control pill, you're just on it indefinitely. And that's not how they were meant to be used. So um, not a fan <laughs> long-term. Yeah. And you know, all of these medications have been um, linked to some cognitive decline and increased risk of dementia with long-term use, which is yes. really scary to me. Yes. How do you, how, tell me your story. How did you get off it? Because what I see a lot in my practice is, you know, I, I, I don't love the Ambien's and the Lunesta's. I do have some people on either Ativan or Xanax, again, given a short-term use, but we start using it for sleep and it becomes hard to get off it. So what's been your experience or how do you counsel clients on trying to get off these medications? Yeah. Well, so since I'm not a doctor, I really kind of have to have the, the I don't want to say patient because you you say patient, I say client, but I really, really advise the client to partner with the prescribing provider. So okay. the person who originally prescribed mm -hmm. the medication is to approach that provider and say, doc, I want to stop taking these meds. Can you give me a titration schedule or a tapering down schedule? Um, and usually the doctor will provide that. And so that is what we follow. And I help, I really just help as a support to that, to that client. Cause it's a little out of scope for me to dictate the, the thing because I'm not the provider. Um, but I do think that you, when you are on a sleeping pill, it is very helpful to have somebody like a sleep coach in your corner to give you the accountability and support um, on a daily basis, because it's very hard. I mean, it took me what, eight years to stop taking them. And I think I, I, I tried to stop many times, but I always kept going back to it. Um, it's a very common scenario. What do you attribute to your success in eventually being able to get off them? I think just sheer willpower. And also the fact that, um, when I was starting to date my current husband, um, he called me out at the beginning. I mean, in a nice way, we were starting to date. And he said, when you start, when you take these pills at night, you, you become sort of like a zombie and it freaks me out. And I thought, oh my gosh, like he wasn't threatening by me by yeah. any means, but it was just like, I felt like, oh gosh, this is my chance to kind of start fresh. Like mm -hmm. this is a good turning point for me to like get off the meds. And so I didn't know any better. I just ended up cutting the pills and halves and then in quarters. And I was able to wean off. Um, but it was really just by sheer will, you know, and I think he was encouraging for me, but he was by no means like a, a coach figure. Um, so I think you, you need someone in your corner when you're going off these meds. I think what I see with my patients is they, do, you know, we go, we talk about some people are able to go to every other day or, or half a dose. And some people need to do, you know, take the full dose. And then every like fourth night you take a half dose, you know, that's slow wean. But I think what happens is you're weaning and you have a couple of nights of bad sleep or something else happens. Right. And you have that acute event and it's hard. I mean, it's just hard. And I think what I'm hearing from you is that, maybe this is where the CBTI comes in, right? Or really looking at some of your other sleep hygiene and sleep patterns. Yes. So with the CBTI, you can do uh, the CBTI with somebody still being on the meds. And the goal is to build up their sleep confidence using the CBTI approaches and boosting the sleep hygiene. So really the bottom, the bottom line is you want to get the client in a, in a space where they've got more confidence in their sleep, because once they have that confidence and they have those small wins, then they're more likely to follow through with the titration for sure. It's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. I guess, you know, the best advice I have for anybody is do whatever you can to prevent yourself from starting them in the first place. Uh, before we wrap up, tell me your you know, as someone who's listened to this for the whole hour, top three tips that they can put into action today to try to improve their sleep. Okay. 
So I would say the top three tips, we kind of went over them before, but getting the morning sunlight, having a regular wake up time, even on the weekends, that's important to keep your circadian rhythm strong. If, if you want to give yourself an hour of leeway on the weekend, it's probably not going to disrupt you too much. And then third would be just daily exercise and movement. It helps a lot with sleep quality. Perfect. If people want to work with you, they want to connect with you online, how can they find you? Yes. My website is morganadamswellness.com. I have a free mini course that I just launched called sleep reset solution. They can take that. Um, I also offer a free consultation and I'm also very active on Instagram. My handle is morganadams.wellness. So you can find me there doing some reels and stories and sleep stuff. Thank you so much. I feel like we could have talked for hours and I'm sure no. as, soon as we stop, I'm going to be like, oh my gosh, there's so many questions, but you have a lot of great content and resources on your website, on social media. So I encourage people to go check you out there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to this conversation. I thought it was really helpful, very impactful, and I really appreciated several tangible tips that Morgan gave us that we can use, again, starting as early as today to try to improve our sleep. I certainly recognize that a cup of coffee I was drinking at 5.30 while we were recording probably was not the best for me. And I am also trying to incorporate a little bit more sunlight first thing in the morning to try to get that vitamin D and that sunshine in. You can find Morgan on Instagram at morganadams.wellness and reach out to her there. As always, you can find me at Dr. Toplinski on any social media platform. And as always, if you have a moment to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, I really appreciate if you can do so because that helps me to grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. Thank you for listening and I will see you soon. 